Section 13 of The Red Lamp by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. August 17th. One lives and learns. Mr. Bethel last night lifted a small corner of the mystery and showed me a few of the wheels within, with the net result that we are where we were before. He telephoned me at nine o'clock last night, the first time I have known him to use the telephone, and asked me to see him. Note. I have, I think, not mentioned in the journal that the three bowlings, the lodge, main house, and boathouse, are on one telephone. As this fact plays an important part later, it requires explanation. I found him alone in the library, but with certain changes from the last time I had seen him thus. The windows were closed and locked, and the heavy curtains drawn across them. Both the rear and front doors in the hall were bolted, and when I was finally obliged to ring, I could hear the old man dragging himself slowly into the hall and there stopping. How is it? He called. Porter! I was on the terrace, and he opened that door for me, working laboriously with his single useful hand. Once inside, he left me to close it for myself, and went back into the library. When I followed him, it was to find him seated with the revolver close at hand as before. He was a strange, half-sinister figure as he sat there, but when he spoke, it was as the querulous invalid of our first meeting. I don't like your house, Mr. Porter, he barked at me without preliminary. I don't like it myself, I admitted. I am thinking of adding to the insurance and then setting a match to it. After you are out, of course, I added. That brought a sort of dry chuckle from him, but the next moment he was back to the attack. He supposed he was responsible for the balance of the rent, but wasn't I morally responsible if he couldn't live there? I had known the stories about the house, and yet had let it to him. There was a question there. There is no question, I said. I have no idea of holding you up for the balance of the rent. It seemed to me, however, that he hardly heard me. He was listening again, as he had before, and when he spoke it was on a totally different matter. You find me rather on guard, he said. I am alone in the house. Where's Gordon? He went back into the city this morning. He has not come back. And there was something in the way he made the statement that caused me to look at him quickly. You mean that he has gone for good? No, I wish to God he had. There was fear in that, and I realized then that all the place showed fear. The locked and bolted house, the dim light, only one lamp going, and that on the desk the revolver, and the old man's twisted body, crouched and watchful. I am afraid of him, Mr. Porter, he said. I think he means to kill me. Nonsense. I wish it were. Can't you get rid of him? Don't you suppose I've tried? His story, if story it can be called, that rambling discourse broken into by his fits of listening, even once of sending me out to take a look around, is as follows. He had picked the boy up in the city, knowing little or nothing about him, and from the time they arrived he had not quite trusted him. After a time, too, he began to suspect that he was getting out of the house at night and possibly using the car. Not guilty in itself, perhaps, he said, but it left me alone, for one thing. That is not a house in which one cares to be alone. He glanced at me. And for another while, well, I needn't tell you what has been going on. But he was not at first really suspicious of these night excursions, save for his resentment at being left there, alone and helpless, with a killer loose in the neighborhood. He kept a watch, therefore, not so much over the boy as over the house and himself in his absence. If we left a door or a window open, he said, I was at the mercy of anybody who chose to enter. And this, he says, was the situation on the night of the 26th of July. He had gone to the boy's room and found it empty, and had after some debate decided to work his way downstairs and lock him out. And myself in, he said. It took him a long time to do it. He says, too, that he was very nervous. There were sounds, especially in the dining room. Nothing he could account for but they upset him still further, and by the time he reached the kitchen he was in a bad way. He had to sit down there. It was while he was sitting there that he heard sounds on the porch and somebody at the doorknob. From that on, he says he was beyond coherent thinking, 
but he had no doubt in the world, because of the stealthiness of the movement, that the thing he had feared was happening. It seems never to have occurred to him that it was Gordon. He dragged himself to the stove, found the poker, and as the door opened, struck with all his strength. It was only when he made a leap from the bell that I knew what I had done. He was stricken. He felt the boy's pulse and knew he was not dead, but off somewhere near the sundial he heard someone moving, and that alarmed him still more. A man never knows his cowardice, he said wryly, until he is put to the test. I have very little idea of what I did next. My only clear recollection is of finding myself in my room. I don't remember getting there. But, and this is the point, the boy suspected him. He was sure of it. There had been a complete change in his attitude since that time, and watching that change, studying Gordon as he had felt obliged to, he had felt that something underlay all this. In other words, gradually he had begun to associate the boy with the other crimes. He is weak, he said. Weak and vicious. And there is that curious mental state called identification. The weak see the crimes committed by the strong, admire them, admire the criminal. Then they begin to ape them. As Gordon may have aped your sheep killer, finally even identifying himself with this unknown, adapting his symbol, or whatever one chooses to call it. I listened carefully, trying to fit this new light on Gordon's injury with the evidence as I knew it. True, the weak link in our chain against him had been that he himself had been attacked, and this was now solved in a perfectly matter-of-fact manner. But there was some discrepancy there, something which eluded me until I had gone over in my mind the events of the night of the 26th in their sequence. Then I found it. But what about the man the boy saw enter by the gunroom window? Pure invention, I feel certain. Had he accused me, he knew the matter of his night excursions would come out. That was the last thing he wanted. It was my next remark, however, which has left us, as I wrote at the beginning of this entry, just where we were before. You haven't said anything about the rope, Mr. Bethel. That is always... Rope, he said slowly. What rope? He was tied hand and foot when I found him. She glanced at me, and then down at his helpless hand. It's a very long time since I have been able to tie a rope, Mr. Porter, he said quietly. I remained with him until an hour or so after the last train from the city had arrived, but there was no sign of Gordon. I offered to remain for the night with him, but he declined. He would not go to bed, however, and I left him there at last, his revolver within reach. Of that later talk, there was one matter of real importance to record. I have a strange picture in my mind, bearing on the relations of these two, the old man and the boy, and leading up to it, each watching the other, the old man terrified, the boy deadly. And on the surface, before any Cochrane, all well enough between them, dictation taken, and the book growing. Small surface differences, perhaps, but underneath, suspicion on one side, and revenge and hatred on the other. Then Gordon took to locking his room. It was Annie Cochran who told Bethel, and from that time on that locked room played its own part between them, the old man asking himself what was hidden in it, the secretary with his sneering smile quietly carrying the key. It grew, I gathered, to have a peculiar place in the old man's imagination. He wandered down the passage to it more than once, Finally, Andy Cochran caught him there, trying the knob, and he had made some excuse and gone away. But the night young Gordon flung out of the house, the same night I saw the figure at the foot of the stairs, Andy Cochran had come to him before leaving, with a key in her hand. I thought you might like this, sir, she said. I find it fits Mr. Gordon's door. Then she had gone, and he went to the room and entered it. The knife and the rope were there, and he took them. What was I to say that night when the constable came down and reported nothing there? In ten minutes or an hour, you're going to leave me here with him. He was watching me. He knew. And I dare say he was right. No matter what statement had been made relative to the rope and the knife, there was no reason for Gordon's arrest that night. In ten minutes or an hour, they would have been left together, and who knows what might have happened. August 18th. Gordon came back early this morning. I invented an errand to the house soon after breakfast, 
but found that Mr. Bethel was still sleeping, as well he might, and that preparations for tomorrow's departure were well underway. While Gordon was busy on the lower floor, Thomas and I made a tour of the house, with a view to closing it. I have instructed him to paint and put up the window boards which close the windows on the lower floor. I shall know no peace until the place is sealed and left to its demons or its ghosts. But I took advantage of my legitimate presence on the upper floor to examine the locked closet in which I had stored the red lamp. It is still there, and apparently has not been disturbed. Halliday today advised for me a period of masterly inactivity. Not that he calls it so, but that is what he means. I have an idea, Skipper, he said, that this calling Greenall off the case was sheer bluff. Every move he made was being watched, and unless I miss my guess, you'll find he's at Bass Cove or someplace nearby, under another name. I thought I saw his Ford a night or so ago. What I finally gathered is that Halliday wants to eliminate me from the case for my own sake. Just now, he said, you are sitting very pretty. But one more bit of bad luck and he's ready to jump. Although he smiled, I have an idea that he is deadly serious, that he knows Greeno is not far away, and that for some unknown reason he expects another bit of bad luck. His face is thin and haggard these days, and from the fact that he sleeps a great deal in the daytime, I am inclined to think that he sleeps very little at night. Between him and Edith, too, I surmised some sort of mysterious understanding. At the same time, there was a noticeable absence of those three-angled conferences in which, some little time ago, we were free to air our various theories. Willy-nilly, I am consigned to innocuous desuetude. Hayward started yesterday on his vacation. August 20th. 4 a.m. Mr. Bethel was murdered between 11 o'clock and midnight last night. Gordon has escaped. 7 a.m. Jane's at last asleep, and I have had some coffee. Perhaps if I record the events of the night it will quiet me. After all, one cannot forget such things. The only possible course is to bring them to the surface, to face them. But I will not face that room. Murder. The very word is evil, but no one has ever known how evil until he has seen it. Such things cannot be written. They should not be seen. They should not be. We have had this murder. We have gone over, inch by inch, the scene of it. We have been spared no shock. The evidence of the struggle is on the walls, the floor, the furniture. We have the very knife with which it was committed. We have even gone further than that. We have followed it outside along the drive to the garage, and from there by the car to the salt marsh beyond Robinson's Point. And yet, according to Halliday, until we have gone still further, we have had no murder, according to the law. Ever since daylight, I have been struggling to see the justice of a law where, when Gordon is found, and Greeno believes he will be found, we cannot convict him unless we also find that bit of old flesh and blood and bone which was once Simon Bethel. Is it only necessary to escape justice that a criminal artfully dispose of his crime? And by how narrow a margin did he escape it? A matter of minutes. Between my calling Halliday on the telephone and my meeting him at the terrace, perhaps even between that and our entrance into that wrecked room, a matter of minutes. In one thing only did he make an error, and even that may not have been an error. He may coolly have abandoned his suitcase, packed and hidden in the shrubbery. He may have stood there a second or so, considering it, and then decided to let it lie. The most grievous thing to me is that I should have given him the warning. And the most terrible picture I have is that, when I called Halliday, he stood listening in at the telephone, craftily calculating. Can I make it? Can I not? With that behind him. Crafty, as old in crime as crime is old, for all his youth, out on the bay disposing of his horrible freight and watching the lanterns as they searched for the boat, seeing them scatter, looking for other boats with which to follow him out onto the water, and then quietly heading back into the creek again and escaping through the woods. Crafty beyond words. August 21st. The excitement is still intense. I have hardly seen Halliday since our trouble. He is working with the police, of which a number have come to assist Greeno. 
Curious crowds stand outside our gates, which we have been obliged to close and lock. A few of the more adventurous, getting admission by the lane, are turned back there by guards who are on duty day and night. Thomas, standing at the gate, has orders to admit only the detectives and duly accredited members of the press. On the bay we have once more the familiar crowd of searching boats. Off the point, dragging has been going on, but with no result. Owing to the fact that no guards were placed by the boat, a large portion of it has already been taken away by morbid individuals who will place their trophies, I dare say, on tables or mental pieces, and thereafter gloat over them. Truly, just as the lunatic always insists that he is sane, so do the sane often demonstrate that they are mad. And so far, nothing. Nothing, that is, which leads to Gordon's apprehension. From the time he turned back in the boat and, landing, made his escape into the woods above Robinson's Point, he disappeared entirely. Here and there a clue has turned up, to end in disappointment. Greeno believes that he will be found, that he cannot escape the police dragnet, but I am not so sure. Although almost forty-eight hours have passed, Jane has not yet opened up the subject of the telephone, and because of her morbid reserve on such matters, I have not told the police. Asked how I happened to be at the telephone and thus received the alarm, I have replied that the bell rang, that I went to the instrument, and was immediately aware that one of the receivers was down, either at Halliday's or at the main house, that I heard a crash over the wire, followed by a second and nearer one, and after that a silence, that following that I heard, near the receiver, the sobbing breath of exhaustion, and that immediately after that the receiver went up, and I called Halliday frantically, and that, on his replying, I told him my suspicion that something was wrong at the main house, and to meet me there at once. But there is a discrepancy here which may cause me trouble if they come back to it. A telephone such as ours does not ring if one of the receivers is down. And the plain fact is that our telephone did not ring at all that night. As I have not yet recorded the events of that tragic evening in their sequence, I shall do so now. Halliday had dined with us, and had been more like himself than for some time past. The news that the house was to be given up had seemed to relieve him, for some strange reason, and I remember he said something which puzzled me at the time. After all, he said, we can't undo what has been done, and it may be the end. After dinner, he and Edith sat on the veranda, and going to lower a shade, I saw that she was holding a match while he drew something on a bit of paper. But the match went out almost at once, and I would have thought no more of it, had I not heard Edith say, And the cabinet was there? In the corner, he replied. I am no eavesdropper, so I drew the shade and turned away. He left at something after ten, and Edith joined us. She was very quiet, and sat watching me play solitaire while Jane sewed industriously. At half-past ten or thereabouts, Jane suddenly said, The telephone is ringing. Both Edith and I looked up in amazement. The instrument was in the small hall, not ten feet from where I sat. It would have been impossible for it to ring without our hearing it, and we had heard nothing. You've been asleep, Jane, Edith accused her. But I glanced at her, and I remembered that she was oddly relaxed in her chair. Her face looked white and her eyes were slightly fixed. It is ringing, she said thickly. And that is how I happened to be at the telephone that night, and how, too, I gave the alarm which enabled the murderer to escape by calling Halliday. Get your revolver and meet me at the main house, I said. There's something wrong there. I know that had I not rung the telephone, had I gone for Halliday instead, we would have caught the criminal. But to ring the one house was to ring the other. He may still have been standing there, gasping. He had, for all he knew up to that time, the rest of the night in which to finish his deadly work, to dispose of the body, to gather up his suitcase, waiting outside, and get away. But I called Halliday, and he listened. He knew then that instead of hours he had only minutes. He must have worked fast, in that ghastly shambles of a room. The car was probably already out in the lane. He may even have stood there at the corner of the lane, the engine turning over quietly, and watched Halliday running up toward the house. And perhaps he laughed, that secret laugh of his which had always rather chilled me. Then, he simply got into the car and drove away. Cool and crafty to the last. 
no body, no murder, he made for the boat. He left behind him only two real clues, the knife, which any Cochrane identifies as one taken from the kitchen, and his packed suitcase. Not intentional, this last. He must have needed clean linen, and certainly that diary of his in cipher, he would not want that in the hands of the police. But what would the diary matter, after all, if he himself escaped? August 22nd. As time goes on, the case is complicated with the eagerness of all sorts of people to bring in extraneous circumstances which they consider important. For instance, Livingston's butler, the one who bought the knife in Oakville and caused so much excitement by so doing, has been over to get a description of Gordon, preserving an air of mystery which under other circumstances would be vastly entertaining. Another story concerns a middle-aged man of highly respectable appearance and of a square and heavy build, who was seen walking uncertainly along the main road near the Livingston place at 1 a.m. the night of the murder. A passing car, seeing his state, stopped and asked if he was in trouble. He replied that he had been struck by a car an hour or so before, and had been lying by the road ever since. His condition bore this out, as he was stained with blood and dirt. He accepted the offer of a lift, and was left at the railroad station at Martin's Ferry to catch the express there for the city. There have been many similar ones. An innumerable number of people are convinced that they have seen Gordon, and apparently almost any dapper youth of twenty or so, with what Edith calls patent leather hair and an inveterate cigarette habit, is likely at any time to be tapped on the shoulder and taken to a police station. Of clues of other and lesser sorts there has been almost an embarrassment. Both the library and that portion of the hall near the telephone have furnished fingerprints. But as Greeno says, fingerprints do not discover criminals, they identify them. Nevertheless, great pains have been taken to preserve them. On the white marble mantel, a very distinct imprint in blood was photographed without difficulty. Others, less clear, were dusted with black powder before the camera was used. Detailed pictures were made of the library and hall before any attempt to put them back to order was permitted, and these prints have been enlarged and carefully studied, one of them with a strange result. Greeno, handing it to me today, said, This print is defective. You can keep it if you care to. But I wonder if it is defective. There is what Greeno calls a light streak in the lower corner, but it requires very little imagination to give to this misty outline the semblance of a form, and to the lower portion of it the faint but recognizable appearance of brocade. I have said nothing. What can I say? One thing which puzzles the police is the violence of the battle. It seems incredible that Bethel could have made the fight for life which he evidently did. At the same time, they have two problems to solve, which repeated searching of the house and wide publicity have not yet answered. One is the disappearance of the manuscript on which Bethel had worked all summer. Annie Cochran has testified that this manuscript was kept locked in a drawer in the library desk. When Halliday and I entered the house, this drawer was standing open and the manuscript was missing. It has not yet been located. But perhaps the most surprising is the failure of any friend or relative of Simon Bethel to interest himself in the case. Kimmerin's note to Larkin before Bethel rented the house expressly disclaims any previous knowledge of him. Here is a possible tenant for Mr. Porter's house, he wrote, of which he spoke to me some time ago. I have no acquaintance with Mr. Bethel, save that he called on me a day or so ago, in reference to a statement in a book of mine. I imagine, however, that he would be a quiet and not troublesome tenant. Halliday brought up this curious situation yesterday, in one of the rare moments he has given us since the murder. Has that occurred to you, Skipper? He said, that it is strange that no one belonging to Mr. Bethel has turned up. I dare say a man can outlive most of his contemporaries and most of his friends. He wasn't as old as all that. And he asked, apparently irrelevantly a moment later, The two evenings you saw him and talked to him, how did he impress you? I mean, the state of his mind. The last time, of course, he was frankly frightened. He said as much. And before that? He didn't say so, but he was more or less on guard. He had his revolver. Of course, those were rather parlous times. As a matter of fact, the case is anything but a clear one against Gordon as it develops. Greeno has been, all along, as convinced of Gordon's guilt as he had previously been of mine. 
but eventually is more open to conviction, and a conversation between Halliday and him this morning on the lawn near the terrace is still running in my mind. Halliday had been protesting against Greeno's method of following a single idea until it went up a blind alley and died there. Of course, he said quietly, you can make a case against Gordon, it's all here, but you'll have something left over that you won't know what to do with. We know that it was Mr. Bethel who hit Gordon and knocked him out some time ago, but who tied him? Where's the boy's own story about seeing a man at the gunroom window? Mr. Porter here later on finds that same window open and sees a man in the lower hall. Who was that? The same hand tied the boy that tied Carraway, and Gordon hadn't even seen this place at that time. What are you going to do with that? Then where's Gordon now? Benchley asked, practically enough. I don't know. Dead, maybe. Benchley stood thinking. I think I get the idea, he said. The fight, you think, was between Mr. Bethel and this unknown of yours? The boy either saw it and got mixed up in it, or he knew he'd be suspected and beat it? Is that it? Well, I would say that a man about to commit such a crime doesn't pack his suitcase with the idea of escaping with it. A thought which, I admit, had never occurred to me until that moment. As a result of this conversation, Benchley has advanced a theory of his own which accounts at least for the failure of any relatives to make inquiry. This is that the old man was in hiding under an assumed name, hiding in the most secluded spot he could find, from some implacable enemy who had finally caught up with him. How he reconciles this with the Carraway murder and the disappearance of Maggie Morrison I do not know, but certain facts seem to bear out this idea. He was, in one sense, a man of mystery. His accounts were paid in cash. The automobile in which he arrived had been bought second-hand a few days before, by the secretary and in the same manner. And all identifying marks had been carefully removed from his clothing. In addition to all this, there is the puzzling report on the knife itself. Examination under the microscope shows fibers of linen, as well as fragments of cellular tissue, but it also reveals minute particles of tobacco leaf, showing it had gone through a pocket. But Mr. Bethel was not a smoker. At some one time, then, Bethel clearly secured the knife and wounded his assailant. Not seriously, evidently, since after that he was able to do what he did do, but sufficiently to turn the minds of the police toward the man who claimed to have been struck by an automobile. This clue, however, has developed nothing. The night was dark, and his rescuers have no description of him, save of a heavy-set figure and a dazed manner of speech. They carried him to Martin's Ferry, but the conductor of the Night Express remembers carrying no such passenger. Greenow today showed me Gordon's diary, rescued from the suitcase. It hath at some time been dropped into water, and certain pages are not legible. If indeed that word may be used where nothing is legible, where each page presents such jumbles of large and small letters as the following sentence, which I have copied as a matter of interest. Quote, capital T, small r, small n, space, small g, period. Capital K, period, space, capital G, capital T, capital R, small g, small g, space, capital U, small n, capital M, capital T, space, small A, small O, small T, space, capital L, small M, capital G, capital T, space, capital M, small O, small T, small R, capital T, period, close quote. The record is not a daily one, but apparently was used for jotting down odd thoughts or ideas. It continues, however, at intervals, for the entire period of his stay at Twin Hollows, the last entry having been made on August 17th. Certain entries are neat and methodical. The one on July 27th, however, after his injury, is by hand and shows certain erasures and changes. Once or twice in August the record is long, covering more than a page, while the July entries are all brief. On the last page, however, and without comment, he has drawn in, rather carefully, a small circle enclosing a triangle. Greeno, while attaching a certain interest to it, has not yet sent it to be deciphered by the code experts of his department. As a matter of fact, I suspect him of holding it out with the idea of being able to claim the reward if he finds Gordon. Which reward, by the way, now stands at $10,000. August 23rd. Halliday saw a red light in the house the night Bethel was killed. He has just told me. 
He ran out after I telephoned him, and from the foot of the lawn he saw it. It was gone almost at once. He has asked me to experiment with him tonight, using the lamp from the attic closet. I have given him the keys. Apparently what he wishes to discover is the approximate location of such a light. I have no idea of his purpose. I understand that the guards who have been watching the house at night have been withdrawn, and that hereafter only such watch will be kept as will suffice to keep away the curious crowds that still throng here in daylight hours. Today Annie Cochran and Thomas have been putting the house in order, preparatory to its final closing. I shall never open it again. Thomas has already painted the window boards and put some of them in place. Let us pray that they keep inside what should be inside, and outside what should be out. End of section 13.